0: locked on Seahawks the daily Seattle Seahawks podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day Greetings 12, this is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Thursday episode, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We've reached the end of the line. It's part three of a three-part series. We're looking at who's going to replace Ken Norton Jr. as the Seahawks defensive coordinator. So far, we've looked at some in-house candidates, some coaches that have worked with Pete Carroll in the past some former head coaches. Today we're going to look at some wild cards, a couple of coaches that have already been reported as potential interviewees for this vacancy on the Seahawks coaching staff. Really excited to break down three specific candidates later in the show, and we're going to continue our awards as well with Rookie of the Year today. So thanks for listening in. Jam-packed episode coming your way. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks, Rob, we've been talking so much this week ever since the news broke about Ken Norton Jr. being fired by the Seahawks on Tuesday. The news really broke on Monday when there were reports from the Seattle Times about that move being made. We've talked about it extensively. We're going to continue talking about who may replace Ken Norton Jr. But before we get to that, I think it would be noteworthy to look back at the fact that the Seahawks have made several coordinator changes over the years on both sides of the football during Pete Carroll's 12 years as head coach. Sometimes it has been because coaches have left for better jobs. We've seen a few guys take head coaching positions, Gus Bradley and Dan Quinn being the ones that have done that. And we've seen him make a few changes at coordinator when things didn't necessarily go as planned and they decided it was time for a change. Daryl Bevel, for example, had a very successful run as Seahawks offensive coordinator. 2017 was a pretty tough season, though, for the Seahawks offense, particularly the run game. Pete Carroll decided at that point it was time to move on from Daryl Bevel as well as offensive line coach Tom Cable. They brought in Brian Schottenheimer. We saw last year something similar transitioning from Brian Schottenheimer to Shane Waldron. So I want to take a step back and just look at how these changes have impacted the Seahawks. And I think it would be safe to say before we even throw some of these numbers up here that the changes have had – a mixed effect on the Seahawks. And sometimes it has done nothing because we know just how dominant those defenses were back in 2012 through 2015. You might've been able to get somebody off the street to coach those defenses and they would have been first in the NFL and scoring.
1: Yeah, no question about it. I mean, that's the thing is the, the defensive talent, what was so good that, um, I don't know that you could have got somebody off the street and still had that same kind of effectiveness, but, but certainly it made it a lot easier um, with what Gus Bradley and, and Dan Quinn um, and then even uh, Ken Norton Jr. as well had to deal with at times because they just did a, one of the expressions that's been around for a long time that the Jimmies and Joe's more important than the X's and O's. You know, the Seahawks had quite the, the, the assortment of Jimmies and Joe's. I mean, a lot of guys who were all pros and, uh, you know, perennial Pro Bowl kind of players. And and they were doing so at a variety of different positions. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that, and I think everybody focuses on the Legion of Boom, for example, but it was the rotation along the defensive line that I think really uh, doesn't get enough credit. And, you know, that, that's one of the I, I think that this is a really uh, smart move to kind of look back in history and, and see what type of, a, of an impact coordinators can have on a team. Um, you know, not just in Seattle, but I think just across the board, But I mean, it's pretty rare that you see an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator and really hit the ground running. It does happen, but usually it's because they have, they have a great deal of talent or there is a return to health from some of the prominent players. And, and that's one of the reasons why I do think that you are going to see a jump up for the Seahawks on the offensive side of the ball next year. I don't think it has anything to do necessarily with Shane Waldron, although Again, I think that Seattle's offense is going to just figure it out a little bit more. But obviously the return to health of Russell Wilson, presumably, I think would go a, huge, a long ways in, in Seattle's offense being uh, that much more consistent in the, a year from now. And then on the defensive side of the ball, again, I think the Seattle has to be able to bring in some talent and, and make whoever is a defensive coordinator's job that much easier.
0: Let's start looking at offense first because the Seahawks have made three changes at offensive coordinator and all of them were related to poor performance or underwhelming performance the year before. Pete Carroll had Jeremy Bates in 2010 for just one season, his first year at the helm. And Bates obviously was the coordinator of the team that pulled off that huge upset in the wildcard round against the Saints, but they were the 23rd ranked offense in the NFL. Pete Carroll did not like the direction that they were going. And so he made a quick move, firing Bates, bringing in Daryl Bevel for the 2011 season. Looking at the numbers, Comparatively, that 2010-2011 and 2011 group, very similar. They were both 23rd overall in points per game and 28th in yards per game. So really bringing Bevel in didn't do all that much, though it did improve their run game. You can account Marshawn Lynch for that, a full season of beast mode as well. They also cut their turnovers down from 21st in the league to 11th. So those were the two stark improvements. Otherwise, a, a pretty flat line. As far as progression goes, a lot of that had to do with going from Matt Hasselbeck to Tavares Jackson at quarterback. They didn't have their long-term answer under center. Didn't have a lot of weapons on the outside as well. But you can see that the 2017-2018 to change going from Daryl Bevel to Brian Schottenheimer, that was one that worked out very favorably for the Seahawks.
1: Yeah, no question about it. And one of the things that my eyes are immediately drawn to is the turnover. Um, and uh, you know turnover numbers, and you know in, in every case on the offensive side of the ball, Seattle's turnovers—you um, know how many turnovers they gave up—wound uh, up improving significantly. And, and so, to me, that is one of the you know kind of interesting things that that kind of jumps out there. But again, as you just said, um, the fact that uh, you were making that transition—you um, know from from Hasselbeck to uh, to Tavares Jackson or Marshawn Lynch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, again, those, those Jimmys and Joes are really going to be making a, a significant impact there. I think if you quickly switch over to the defensive side of the football, though, you, you can also see that, uh, again, the turnovers. Even in the 2017 to 2018 transition, going from ninth in the NFL to tenth, so it's pretty much staying about the same. But the other two, uh, you know, regime changes, a defensive coordinator. Again, you saw a little bit of an immediate impact there in terms of turnovers. That to me is one of the most exciting things, considering how much Seattle struggled to turn the football. Uh, over on the defensive side of the ball this year and and some of the big names that we see, whether they be kind of old hats like Vic Fangio and guys like that that we talked about uh, yesterday or some of the exciting prospects that are out there as far as young coaches that are kind of moving their way up up to the ranks we're going to be talking about a little bit later today.
0: Yeah, if you looked at the chart there, you could see, and you just mentioned it, when they had the transition from Dan Quinn to Chris Richard, they improved in the turnover department from – 2014 to 2015 and they were still first in scoring defense now as that legion of boom started to get banged up in the next couple of years and the defense started to regress some Chris Richard ended up paying for that with his job after the 2017 season they let him go Ken Norton Jr. comes in and there was a regression in yardage and points allowed and some of that really had to do with the personnel and we've talked about that some this week why maybe that was a defense for Ken Norton Jr. that hey look at the players that he had yes there were some stars out there but they've had some personnel deficiencies on the front line and they've had some issues keeping cornerbacks and safeties healthy that's certainly is something you could look at and say Ken Dorton Jr. maybe did a pretty good job considering the circumstances but all in all when you look at those numbers what really stood out I agree with you the turnovers on offense every single time they've changed coaches even this past season Shane Waldron That was one of the most mystifying things about this year, and Pete Carroll was baffled by it because you expect if you are really good at not turning the football over that you are going to win a lot of games, and yet the Seahawks lost a bunch of games this year where they won the turnover battle, and they just weren't able to finish off victories. And part of that, the offense was really bad on third down most of the season, and they really regressed in terms of passing and rushing yardage much of that having to do with Russell Wilson's injury, learning a new offense. They did get the lift from Rashad Penny at the end of the year. So this will be something interesting to look back upon after the 2022 season. Whoever the Seahawks end up picking is Ken Norton Jr.'s replacement to see what changes, if anything, occur on the field in terms of production from the Seahawks defense, going from Ken Norton Jr. to the next person in line. We'll be investigating three more candidates later in the show that may be selected as the replacement for Ken Norton Jr. Some wild cards from outside the organization that don't have prior links to Pete Carroll at all. These are the type of coaches we haven't seen the Seahawks hire to this point for those defensive coordinator positions, but maybe after a 7-10 and 10 season, they'll decide to change up the way that they handle these hirings and, and maybe bring it outside-the-box type hire. So I'm really looking forward to breaking down those three candidates. First, though, we're going to continue our season awards with Rookie of the Year, I mentioned yesterday we had covered that, and several of you messaged me on social media. Wait, I don't remember Rookie of the Year. That's because we haven't gotten there yet. So we're going to break down our Rookie of the Year selections here in a moment. We're all looking for an edge these days, and I'd like to thank OnlineGambling.com for sponsoring today's podcast. If you don't know already, OnlineGambling.com is a website dedicated to giving betters the edge Throughout the playoffs, they're providing you with the best NFL tips, news, and more to help you make your bets as informed as ever. This week, the experts at OnlineGambling.com sent me the challenge of picking my divisional round upset. An underdog that, in my opinion, could pull off a huge victory. I don't know that I'd view any of these games as having a major underdog. I think all four are going to be very competitive, but a lot of people are picking the Tennessee Titans to beat the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm going with Joe Burrow and company. I think the quarterback advantage for Cincinnati plays in their favor. Even with a full-strength Titans team coming off a week off, they're going to get Derrick Henry back. It doesn't matter. I'm going with Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and company. Big upset for the Bengals. If you're thinking about backing an underdog like the Bengals in the divisional rounds, make sure you head to OnlineGambling.com before you do. OnlineGambling.com gives betters the edge by providing the best and most trusted information to help you make the best decision possible before placing a bet. That includes their OG tip section where you can see their underdog picks as well as an inside track on how to beat the odds throughout the NFL playoffs. So make sure to visit OnlineGambling.com NFL For all the latest gambling news, tips, and info, beat the odds, and give yourself the edge throughout the playoffs. That's OnlineGambling.com slash NFL to make the most of this year's playoffs. You're listening to the Thursday edition of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined as always by Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it continuing our season awards we looked at comeback player of the year yesterday I mentioned Rob that we had done rookie of the year already and again thanks to our listeners it shows that you are listening astutely several of you messaged like wait a second I don't remember ever hearing the rookie of the year what episode was that well wait a second we hadn't covered it so maybe that's partially because the Seahawks had three draft picks and they just kind of slid under the rug but Let's talk Rookie of the Year because I think maybe the two best candidates for this award, Rob, are undrafted rookies. None of the draft picks that the Seahawks made last April were able to play in very many games. Trey Brown ended the year on injured reserve. D. Eskridge was out for almost half the season with a concussion. Never really was able to get going after he returned. Had a couple flashy plays. And we only saw Stone Forsythe play on offense for 14 total snaps the entire year. So really, the draft class didn't get to see a lot from those three players. But then you had Jake Curhan, the undrafted rookie tackle out of California that started the last five games. And you had John Radigan, undrafted linebacker out of Army that played in 14 games before unfortunately suffering a torn ACL and really emerged as a core special teams player for the Seahawks.
1: Yeah, no question about it. I mean, you're going to hear me mention the number five a bunch of times here, Corbin. Um, You know, as you just mentioned, uh, each player by name, there were five rookies here who are candidates. Of course, the three draft picks, uh, you know. D. Eskridge, obviously, in the first in the second round, uh Trey Brown there shortly thereafter, and of course the, the offensive tackle, Stone Forsyth. Those being the three drafted players. And then, of course, the two undrafted uh hits that that Seattle had with Jay Kurhan and, and, of course, John Radigan as well. So those are your five rookie candidates here. Um, I also mentioned the, the number five because uh, you know, again, there there were five starts that Jay Kurhan had at that right tackle position. That is his uh his best position in the NFL. Was the position that he played mostly at Cal, and over those five games, he only allowed one uh, one sack. Um, and so, to me, that is one of the reasons why I think that this is a runaway uh, for Jake Curhan to be the, the the rookie of the year for the Seahawks. Um, but at the same time, I also uh, really like what we we saw from uh, John Radigan and Trey Brown as well. Um, you know, D. Eskridge, yeah, you, you saw some flashes of it, but I didn't see enough to even have that kind of conversation. I think you can make an argument for Trey Brown. The fact that he did get his opportunities um, and was able to make some big plays. I think anybody who watched that game against the Green Bay Packers, the number yep. one seed, of course, in the NFC, and the fact that he was as productive as he was in that game. I mean, Aaron Rodgers tried a couple of times to target him, and, and Trey Brown basically stood up to the challenge and, and played really good football there. Um, but at the same time, because it was a limited sample set, I believe it was five games for Trey Brown that was able uh, to play at least any kind of meaningful snaps. Um, so, again, that's the reason why, for me, that there's no question about it. The John Ragan's a good football player, but at the same time, it was on special teams not making nearly as many impact plays. I know that a lot of our listeners are just going to shudder with the idea of giving the rookie of the year to a lineman. But I just ask people to take your eyes off the football and watch what Jake Curran was able to do for the CX, not just in pass protection, as I mentioned before, but the the dominant run that we saw Rashad Penny have down the stretch, a big part of it was due to the blocking in the right tackle position.
0: I don't think most of our listeners are going to have any issue with Jake Curran being selected as rookie of the year, because based on what I've seen on Twitter, He seems to be beloved by the fan base, and why not? I mean, he has brought, I have mentioned this comparison a few times, our good friend Ian Furness, who we talk to regularly. The two of us were sitting in the press box when they were playing the Rams in week 15, and and they were getting some really good runs with DJ Dallas in the third quarter running to the right side. And all I kept thinking is this kid plays like Breno Giacomini, who was the starting right tackle for the Seahawks when they won the Super Bowl. Back in 2013-2014. I think that Jake Curhan plays with the same nastiness, the same edge, and more discipline. That was always Giacomini's biggest issue was penalties. We didn't see that from Jake Curhan, and I just love what I see from him in the run game. You mentioned the fact he only gave up one sack in those last five starts. There were some pressures mixed in there. He's got some issues with athletic pass rushers, and I think that's always going to be something that's going to be a little bit of an issue for him because he's not a great athlete, but With technique that he possesses, he's able to withstand that a lot of the time, and he's got such a high football IQ. This kid was a four-year starter in the Pac-12, didn't get drafted because of a heart condition. He had the talent to be a draft pick, though, and played really well with every opportunity he had. The starts, uh, not the starts, but the spells he had to make at the guard positions, which is not his natural spot. He had some issues with interior pass rushers, but still, he survived. He held up out there, so... He's my co-pick. I'm going to go co special teams. I know yesterday I said I don't like doing that, but we got to give John Radigan credit because this kid didn't even play most of the preseason in training camp because of a hamstring injury. I thought for sure that he was not going to be making his team and might not even be a practice squad player because he didn't get a chance to show what he could do, but he was so impressive during their OTAs and their mini camps that Pete Carroll decided, you know what, we're going to wait this out. We'll start him on the practice squad. He played well the first game of the year against the Colts on special teams. They ended up promoting him to the fifth three-man roster the next week, and he ended up playing 14 games. He finished third on the team with 10 special teams tackles, and nine of those were solo tackles. He also recovered a fumble in their road win against the 49ers. No defensive snaps, but no big deal in a year like this where – all three of your draft picks. Trey Brown played really well. I just five games just is not a big enough sample size for me. John Radigan, I got to see him make an impact in 10 games on special teams. And you could see the difference when he got hurt the last few weeks. They were not the same on their kit cover. That's a big loss for them. A very good special teams player. He deserves some kudos. And Jake Curham for what he did those last five games, a couple of games before that, that he stepped in and gave them some valuable snaps. Looks like they're starting right tackle in the future. I think that it's fair to give this award to both of them because you always got to give the props to the undrafted rookies when they come in as rookies and make plays and contribute in the regular season. Both these guys were able to do that. As far as the future, I still think Trey Brown, if he can get back from this knee injury, if he can get back and play the way he did, he's got a really bright future. But ultimately, just not enough games for me to give him This award let's shift back to the defensive coordinator talk and we've got some wild cards that we're going to be combing through two coaches that have already been reported as coordinator candidates that the Seahawks want to interview and one other wild card coming from the AFC East that might be available now that his head coach has been fired and is interviewing for other coaching positions really looking forward to diving into these three wild card candidates here in a moment. People think unusual circumstances mean complicated taxes, but for TurboTax Live experts, that's what makes things interesting. Maybe you inherited a condo and are renting it out, or maybe you're getting paid in crypto and aren't sure how it's taxed. For TurboTax Live experts, an interesting life can mean an even greater refund. Luckily, TurboTax Live can match you with the right expert who has the experience in your unique situation and can answer all your tax questions right from your phone or computer They can even take care of the whole filing process for you. Whether you launched your own startup or working multiple jobs and juggling multiple incomes, an experienced TurboTax Live expert can help you during the entire filing process or do your taxes for you from start to finish to get you the tax deductions you deserve. Visit TurboTax.com to learn more. You do your thing. They've got your taxes. Intuit TurboTax Live. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined as always by Rob Rang. Thanks for tuning in and making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. The last two episodes, we've been looking at candidates to replace Ken Norton Jr. Now it's time for part three, the last part of our three-part series. We've already looked at coaches who were close to Pete Carroll or had worked on his staff. We looked at former head coaches yesterday. Now it's time for the wild cards, Rob. And man, we've got some intriguing ones. And, and the first one we're going to talk about here, I think you and I both with our teaching backgrounds. When I started reading up more about this man, my ears perked up. And that's Sean Desai from the Chicago Bears was their defensive coordinator last year, climbed the ladder. You don't often see coaches stay with the same organization through three head coaching changes, but Sean Desai did that in Chicago he was there with Mark Tressman. he was there with John Fox and he was there with Matt Nagy and he worked his way up the ladder after being at Temple Miami and Boston College at the college level this is a guy that has a degree in educational administration he is truly an instructor at heart first and foremost and you can see that based on the fact that he's coached running backs, he's coached corners, linebackers, safeties. I think the only positions he hasn't coached are quarterback and offensive line, and he probably could coach those positions if you asked him to. He's that kind of a candidate, and so I got really excited looking at his resume and what he did with that Bears defense last year without Khalil Mack most of the season – was pretty darn impressive.
1: It was very, very impressive. And of course, you know, I, I love that you mentioned the education background. I mean, I was inspired. That's why I wanted to kind of record our podcast here from, you know, live from uh, from my classroom. Um, you know, I, um, I'm really intrigued by Desai. To me, there are so many elements of him that are kind of reminiscent of a year ago when we first started hearing the name Shane Waldron. And the idea that Shane Waldron had coached so many different positions before was kind of viewed as this young up and coming coach. Um, And and so to me, that's some of the things I, I see with Desai. Let's go all the way back to Temple. Um, you know, they had a, a pretty good coach there, and Al Al Golden uh, was the head coach there. And Golden wound up becoming the the head coach at Miami um, as well, and now is in the NFL, um, I believe, with those Cincinnati Bengals that you had kind of mentioned previously. Um, you know, a really good coach, and and, and just kind of. Kind of laid the foundation for not only Desai, um, but for Matt Rule, who wound up taking over as, as the Temple head coach a couple of years later, and now, of course, is the head coach in Carolina. I, I mentioned that Corby just because of the fact that again we, we we're starting to see kind of how these coaches kind of start to, to move up, and of course, I always go back to from the NFL draft perspective. You look at some of the players that that Temple uh, you know produced in, in the NFL draft over the time that Desai was there. Um, You know, guys like a first round pick, Muhammad Wilkerson, went to the New York Jets a really good football player. Uh, You know, they they had several players that wound up getting drafted, but they were kind of homegrown players. Temple was not the kind of program that was, you know, earning those five star recruits. And that, to me, is what I want to see from a coach. Give me a guy who was able to develop talent, Um, you know, whereas some of the other coaches out there, some of the big names out there, I, I think that. You know, they were, were coaching in programs um, or NFL teams that they had so much talent that you almost expect them to do very well. And so to me, that's one of the things I've been very intrigued by Desai. You mentioned the fact that uh, the Chicago Bears, where he was the coach, um, you know, this, this past season, the fact that their defense was as good. As it was this past year, despite the fact that they didn't have their top pass rusher in Khalil Mack, Akeem Hicks is another one uh, that that missed significant time for yep. the Bears this past season. And just like I mentioned before, about you know maybe it would make some sense to talk to some of those former Denver head, those Denver coaches, uh, whether it be Fangio or, or whoever the case might be, because of the the familiarity they may have with the pending free agent Von Miller. Same thing with those Chicago Bears and Akeem Hicks. I think Akeem Hicks would look awfully good in a Seattle Seahawks uniform as well. And so because of Desai, that, that might be somebody who might be able to convince, uh, you know, a, a big talented player like Hicks to maybe consider going out, out to the Pacific
0: Northwest. And Pete Carroll seems to be very enamored by coaches right now that are linked to Vic Fangio. We've seen Ed Donatel already. Obviously, those two have their relationship previously coaching together. In college and in the NFL, but he seems to be enamored by those guys. Clint Hurt's already on his staff and Clint Hurt was working under Vic Fangio for a few years in Chicago. And oh, by the way, you know who else was there during that time? Sean Desai. He worked along with Vic Fangio and Clint Hurt. So this might be a way, maybe a co-coordinator type situations we were talking about yesterday, that you can have Clint Hurt stay in Seattle and you can bring Desai in as your pass game coordinator. That intrigues me a lot. And you look at the numbers last year, they were 22nd in scoring defense, which obviously is not good. But the Bears finished sixth in total yardage, third in passing yardage. They finished first in pressure percentage, and that was with seven games of Khalil Mack. He missed 10 games last year. And they also had eight games without Akeem Hicks. So two of your best defensive linemen, yet they still finished first in pressure percentage and fourth in sacks with an offense that was putrid and kept putting them in really bad spots. If the Bears had a competent offense, I think this defense would have been significantly better in the points allowed category. And I thought decided a fantastic job. I just love the background he has in multiple positions. And what he did as a defensive backs coach, working with safeties there the two years before he became coordinator. Eddie Jackson was an all pro. Haha, Clinton Dix, the last good season he had of relevance in the NFL, was with the Chicago Bears, with Desai coaching him, and a couple of their corners. Kyle Fuller was an all pro one season, and that was with Desai working with him on the defensive staff. So this guy, I just love the track record. I love the fact that he's only 37 years old, has some new ideas that he can bring to the table. I think there's another coach that's worth talking about, though, that checks off those boxes as well, and that is Joe Witt Jr. Now, he does not come from the Vic Fangio tree, but the last two years, he's been working with Pete Carroll's old buddy, Dan Quinn, in Atlanta and Dallas, and he's got a long track record. He was in Green Bay for almost a decade, and the Packers led the NFL during that time in interceptions. He coached up a couple of really good Pro Bowl corners, And Tremont Williams and Sam Shields while he was there. Just always seemed like the Packers during that time were getting their hands on the football. And look what he did in Dallas this year as the defensive back and passing game coordinator with Dan Quinn. The Cowboys led the NFL in turnovers. And some of that is Dan Quinn's doing with what he had with this defense, what he was doing with their front seven. But Trayvon Diggs' second year leads the league with 11 interceptions. They had two other corners with three apiece. They had two safeties with two interceptions apiece. It shouldn't be surprising when you look at Witt's track record, though. Everywhere he has been, teams have been able to create turnovers. He knows how to coach up ball hawking corners. We know how frustrated Pete Carroll was to see his team fall to 25th in the turnover column this year on defense. Bringing a guy like Witt in, who knows how to coach up those DBs and get turnovers, seems like a pretty ideal pick. The size, a good one. I like Wit as well.
1: Oh, I, I absolutely like Wit as well. Um, you know, again, because you mentioned like the Green Bay Packers and the fact that he was very successful even before he joined arms with, with Dan Quinn in Dallas and the fact that they had uh, digs, as you mentioned, leading the NFL in interceptions, the most dynamic defensive rookie this year. And Micah Parsons uh, as well. I mean, completely changed that defense. Um, you know, they the, the Dallas Cowboys led the NFL in turnovers um, this past season. I mean, Micah Parsons and Trevon Diggs were a huge part of that, but so was the coaching. Um, And so again, to me, that that is something that um, you know you you have to think that Seattle is going to be able to bring some kind of young talent or some fresh talent. I shouldn't necessarily say young, uh, but some fresh talent into the fold this year. And so you have to have somebody who's going to be able to put those players in a position in which they can succeed. And that's one of the things that we've kind of talked about ad nauseum here is whoever that defensive coordinator is has got to be able to have a plan for Jamal Adams. And and so in a lot of ways, you might be you might be thinking that uh, Wit might be the perfect candidate for that. Um, You know, among those Dallas players who kind of came out of nowhere this year was J. Ron Curse, a big safety who is, you know, some people have compared McCann Chancellor because the guy is, you know, 6'4", 220 pounds, much bigger, kind of a downhill kind of a guy that not a lot of teams are looking for right now the Dallas Cowboys with Witt and Dan Quinn were able to make him into a playmaker for them rather than being the liability. So to me, that's one of the intriguing things about him. I just mentioned all the different talent that Dallas has and all of those players remaining healthy, very different than what we talked about before with Desai. I love that you mentioned, um, you know, just the the, the the lack of durability that Chicago had, the fact that Chicago's offense struggled as much as it did. But at the same time, talking about Desai here for a moment, I mean, think about the teams that they were facing. Uh, you know, the Green Bay Packers, of course, but the Minnesota Vikings have a really good offense as well. The Seahawks know all too well the Detroit Lions can move the ball also. So, uh, you know, to me, this is, a uh, you know, it, it, with Desai, you have a guy who has built a team up and had some success in, despite going up against pretty damn good competition that would be the one of the things I would want to have a conversation here with. It came down to wit is that you're going up against the NFC East. Um, You know, when the NFC East was the NFC least for most of this season. So to me, what is critical is not just the, the fact that with wit, you do have that connection to Dan Quinn and something that Pete Carroll is going to trust, but going back to those green Bay days, of course, we all know that John Schneider, that's where he kind of cut his teeth as well. And so he's going to have that familiarity. That to me is one of the reasons why Witt is also a fascinating kind of outside the box kind of candidate for the Seahawks should absolutely be exploring.
0: Both of these coaches, they have requested interviews for, but they are under contract with their respective teams. So who knows if they'll even get to interview them from what I've been told the Chicago bears would like to keep decide. They're trying to figure out who their new head coach is going to be the Dallas Cowboys have Mike McCarthy under contract, but there have been some murmurs after they lost their wildcard round game to the 49ers that maybe they might make a change there. Dan Quinn's interviewed for several head coaching positions. If he leaves, now you've got a defensive coordinator spot that's open. So Witt could go right into that role. The Cowboys might just want to keep him around. So we'll have to see what happens. And for that reason, I want to throw out a name that has not been linked to the Seahawks. And I'm going to just say this right now. He might not even get considered for this position, but, Looking at those last two names, what the Seahawks seem to be interested in, guys that have climbed the ladder, that have background coaching defensive backs, understand how to defend the pass in the NFL, have had success at various stops in the NFL. I'm going to sound like a homer here because I'm a Boise State fan, and he was one of my favorite players on the team that upset Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl back in 2007. But Gerald Alexander was a second round pick in the NFL, played till 2011, has been coaching ever since. He's slowly worked his way through the college ranks, got to Montana State, and then the last few years, he has just soared with three different organizations, most recently being with the Miami Dolphins as a secondary coach. You look at what the, the job that he has done in Miami, they've got really good corners on the outside. Javon Holland had a great rookie season at safety for them, big reason for that is the presence of Gerald Alexander. I just think that he is going to be a home run defensive coordinator at some point. Maybe it's not this year, but somebody is going to get a really good play caller that has that secondary background in today's pass-happy NFL. I think Gerald Alexander would make a lot of sense for the Seahawks. We'll see if that's a name that crops up at some point. I would think if Desai and Witt can't be interviewed, that Gerald Alexander would be another one that would make sense coming from Brian Flores tree. If they're thinking outside the box, that's a guy that could make a lot of sense for the Seahawks. Yeah, he could.
1: Um, you know, again, I, I always worry about the Jimmy's and the Joe's kind of effect. And you mentioned the Miami had the cornerbacks they have. Again, I, I kind of go back and, and think about the offenses that they were facing in the AFC East. Um, You know, and, and so I wonder if maybe they were kind of picking on the little children of the poor uh, kind of things at times in the in the AFC East with the offenses and the rookie quarterbacks and and things of that nature. But at the same time, I just love Gerald Alexander's background, the fact that he is a former NFL player. That's something that, um, you know, of course, Pete Carroll was always kind of prioritized. He loves to have coaches who are former players themselves. We just only have to look at what the the impact Adrian Peterson had just this past season uh, with with Rashad Penny. Um, And and I like the fact that that Gerald Alexander with his Boise State uh, background. The fact that he was, a um, you know, worked with the University of Washington for a year as well. So he is somebody who is familiar with this region. Um, And and I think that that helps. Um, And and then again, with the three different NFL teams that he's worked uh, uh, with in the last couple of years as well, he does have experience in a lot of different schemes, a lot of different coaching uh, and and styles. So to me, he is an interesting candidate. If I was going to throw another candidate, um, you know, I, I mentioned him yesterday, Jim Schwartz, is another one. Um, I, I like the background as far as being a head coach um, you know, previously, and the fact that it just seems like every time on every defense that he worked with, they had an ability to produce big-time interior defensive linemen. That to me, I think, is one of the areas that Seattle does need to improve, uh, not just on the edge rusher, but in terms of the inside as well. Um, maybe that's just retaining Al Woods. I don't know, but it seemed to me that when Seattle has somebody in the middle that is wreaking havoc, then they just play that much better. It's not, not rocket science. you got to have big guys. And, and that's one of the things that Jim Schwartz, of all these coaches that we've talked about, he does seem like he has a track record of doing that. So I don't know if there would be a personality match. He is currently with the Tennessee Titans right now. And if the Titans do go on a big run here, I would expect that he would be among the Titans coaches that might be gaining a little bit of interest out there. But he would be another wild card uh, that I think that is somebody that the Seahawks should be at least considering.
0: I just want that to happen just to see Jim Schwartz and DK Metcalf interact on the field. If you remember a couple of years ago in Philadelphia when Metcalf misheard what he said, according to Schwartz, on the field, and then he ended up torching Darius Slay. There's a little bit of a history there, but I think that they could mend that relationship if they were on the same side. I, I think if we're going to go that route, I'm going to throw the name Lovey Smith out just briefly. These are two guys we could have included in yesterday's segment, but... We had four coaches already. Lovey Smith's been around the block. It's been a long time since he was a head coach for the Bears. He led them to a Super Bowl, had some really good defense. And then it seemed like the rest of the league caught up with the Tampa 2 coverage and wasn't able to quite get things rolling again and had some struggles at Illinois at the college level. But I thought he did a really good job with not a lot of talent in Houston this past season. And that secondary was creating turnovers. Again, Pete Carroll is looking for that. He wants to get the turnovers going again in 2022. That was a big thing missing for this defense that if they could have got a few more of those turnovers, the rest of the defensive stats probably would have looked significantly better. And so he knows Lovey Smith can coach up the secondary. He knows that he can coach up pressure as well. If you look at his days with the Chicago Bears, those are two areas they drastically need to improve. So I don't think either one of those guys will be ultimately considered, but they would be names to throw out there especially if Desai and Witt are not options that are on the table and they don't look at a young up-and-comer like say a Gerald Alexander that might potentially be available to them as well we've thrown out a ton of candidates the last three days we'll see who else emerges obviously this is going to be a topic we're going to continue to touch on until the Seahawks make their hire and then from there we'll take a much deeper dive into whoever the new defensive coordinator is but If new candidates are revealed here in coming days, you can expect to hear about them here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. As always, thanks for making our podcast your first listen five days a week. Now make your second listen, Locked On Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Rob at Robrang. Make sure to check out Locked On Seahawks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the Odyssey app, and of course, you can watch on YouTube. Coming up on our Blue Friday episode, I'll be joined by Nick Lee. We're going to continue our postseason awards with Offensive Lineman of the Year, and we're going to start breaking down some positional groups, looking at how the twenty-one season, how the twenty twenty-one season fared at the quarterback spot. We hope you'll be listening in. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday, Go Hawks!